morning. Welcome back to our podcast, School Buzz. Uh, today I have with me Alicia Casey and Krista Thompson, and we're going to talk about equity in education. So welcome, ladies. Give us a little brief um, introduction for yourself. Okay. Hello, I'm Alicia Casey. I'm the Director of Student Equity Access and Outcomes. I'm in the department of the same name, but I'm also in the um, Educational Services Department. Um, I've been in our school district as I'm an educator for about going on 22 years, but before that I was a student in our district, so went through from kindergarten all the way through eighth grade. I'm a proud mother of a student who also went through Lancaster School District, and of course I've had many um, family members who've gone through Lancaster School District, but also are part of Lancaster School District. Um, so. Um, equity is one of my passions, especially, you know, the culturally responsiveness and um, supporting our students, especially our historically underserved students. And so that's why I'm here today to talk about equity in education. Great. What schools did you attend? So I attended Desert View mm -hmm. and then I attended Monta Vista and Parkview. Those oh, were my, okay. those were my schools. Yeah. Very good. Well, good afternoon or evening or morning, whenever you're listening to this. Uh, I'm Krista Thompson. I am the Director of Curriculum Instruction and Assessment. Um, it's my honor to work with Alicia. I have not gone to school in the Lancaster School District. I'm a transplant to the area. I've been here 17 years, but um, worked in a lot of the different districts around here as a teacher and a coach and an administrator and, and a board member even. So, um, But this is my sixth year in the Lancaster School District and happy to be here. And happy to have you here. Yeah, so thank you, Krista, <clears throat> for joining us. Yes. So we've heard the term equity over and over again these last few years, so that it doesn't become just another buzzword. Tell us about what educational equity is. Okay. So that is a good question, Rebecca. <laughs> so educational equity is intentionally providing and ensuring that each person has access to what they need in order to reach their personal best and eliminating barriers that prevent this achievement. And so you'll notice that in my title, it says student equity. Um, however, in order for us to um, have equitable, equitable outcomes for our students, we need to make sure that we are looking at equity for all of our stakeholders. So this is involving our families and this is involving all of our staff because we know that they um, impact our students. And so we need to make sure that we are really providing access so that they can reach their personal best, talking about our families and our, our, um, our staff, so that that can trickle down and directly impact our students within the classroom. But it's not just about providing that access, making sure that you can reach your personal best, but it's also about eliminating those barriers. Um, and so you can see this in our LCAP goals. Um, we are fortunate in the Lancaster School District that our LCAP goals are have equity integrated um, seamlessly through them, um, but then it's also attached to our site plans and then even down to our signature practices. And this is also why our district is focused on MTSS, multi-tier system of support, because with this system, we really um, are looking at equity at the core as we're looking at supports for all students at tier one and then intensifying as we go up to tier two and tier three. Um, and then also I just want to say that our school district is focused on equity through MTSS because we're creating systems within our district where all students are fully valued and welcomed while providing a continuum of support to ensure all students are benefiting from 
and engaging in learning. So I'm, I'm interested when you say that barriers, because I'm thinking about parents and barriers. I would think that there would be like a language barrier for somebody that didn't speak English. That might be keeping them from coming to school and being part of the part of the partnership that we want with our parents. What other kind of barriers might parents face? Um, so that's a good point. And yes, language barrier is a big one. And um, that's why I'm, I'm so proud that Lancaster School District has family ambassadors. And um, at our middle schools, we also have um, two family ambassadors, one that is really focused on um, our bilingual families and giving that support and able to engage with them. And we have that at some of our elementary sites also. Um, other barriers are we know that we are um, a district that has a lot of commuters. And so a barrier could be that families want to be more active within their child's school setting. However, they can't because of you know work and, and time and things like that. Another barrier can be um, educational level. Um, we hear from our families that you know they are trying to support. Um, however, we know with the transition to Common Core, it left some of our families behind and some of our families are, are struggling to ensure that their students are getting the level um, of rigor that's needed. Um, and so that's another barrier for our families. And I know a lot of times as educators, we will throw out a lot of acronyms mm. that families, you know, if you're at an IEP and the family's like, well, I do not know what they're talking about. We have our own kind of little language mm -hmm. in our profession that we got to be very cognizant of when we're working with families because they don't speak, they don't understand SST, IEP, mm -hmm. all those Educator language. Yeah, all that, yes. all that stuff that we throw out a yes, lot of Yes, that is another barrier. Good point. Um, there's a lot of controversy right now about critical race theory. You know, we see that in the news. We see it in... Um, people coming to board meetings, being very concerned about that. So how does this factor into equity work, equity work, at, or does it affect what we do in our school district? Okay. So um, yes, in, in the adult world, we would call it a, a controversy, but for us, I believe it's more of a, a misunderstanding or misinterpreting what CRT is. And so um, when we're looking at CRT, you know, sometimes we, we know that it's attached to culturally responsive teaching, but in this case, CRT is referring to um, critical race theory. And so um, this is not a, a, a simple, easy question to, um, to answer in that there's, um, because there's misunderstanding and misunderstanding at different levels, you really do need to um, do your own research and, and listen to like the co-authors and, and those who um, are part of critical race theory in order to get a, a better understanding. And so I, I would not say that I'm a, an expert within critical race theory because I haven't taken that course in higher education. Um, so I would um, recommend that people Google Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a leading scholar and co-author of critical race theory. So Google her and, and Kimberly Crenshaw um, talking about critical race theory. Um, she's alive and she's well and she's able to say, you know, what it is that critical race theory actually is and how does it really impact our educational system. Okay. Um, also, at our recent AXA Leadership Summit, we had um, a speaker by the name of Tyson Amir. Um, he's an educator amongst other things and um, at our equity luncheon, he really broke down for the crowd um, what critical race theory is. And so, and, and it was from an educator's perspective. And so I would also say, Google him and listen to him because he, he really broke it down into chunks of understanding for us. Um, but critical race theory, 
I'm going to define it. Mm -hmm. It is a method of analysis. It is a way of looking and analyze, analyzing law's role in creating both race and racism. It is a way to look at patterns of inequality, its impact, and how laws and policies contribute to the subordinate status of people of color. So CRT, it recognizes that systemic racism, it is a part of American society, and it really challenges the, um, the beliefs that allow it to flourish. Um, it is a practice, it is an approach to analyze and examine the institutional impacts of race and racism in society. It's not looking at the individual levels of racism, um, but it's also done, this study, this analysis is also done and it is done in higher education, which is um, above 12th grade, so 12th grade and beyond. And so at this higher level, which is above 12th grade, Critical race theory is applied to the field of education to gain an understanding of racial inequalities in its policies and practices in order to intervene. So again, at the higher education level, there's this analysis that is going on. It's, it's a critical analysis, just like how we have like the scientific method, um, how we critically analyze things within our history. It's the same thing, but it's done at a higher education level in order for us to look at how is it now impacting different levels um, in our society, different um, issues in our society. And of course, education is one of them. So from what I understand, and my, my understanding of it is very, very uh, limited, it started kind of as a law school course that would was helping lawyers understand how laws were passed that then would keep people out of having, you know, equitable thing, equitable access in society. So that's kind of where it started. And then as we saw the value of that and understanding that there are systems in place that don't allow people equitable access, we took that and applied it to medicine and we applied it to education and we applied it to the different institutions in our country so that we understand how certain laws or regulations keep people from having access to quality care or quality education. Am I understanding that correctly? Mm -hmm. Yes, and but then again, it's um, as you're saying, it's at the adult level. Right. Um, but then also, like for example, political science, if you take that as, um, of course, your major minor in, um, in the university, then this might be a course that you would uh, undertake. Great, thank you for that clarification on that. Um, so how do we, do we teach critical race theory in Lancaster? And explain how we teach kids in our district about um, equity. So um, I'll jump in on this one. The short answer to that is no, we don't teach critical race theory in the Lancaster School District. Um, we don't have any instructional materials that directly address um, critical race theory, uh, but we do emphasize and prioritize culturally relevant teaching, the other CRT. Um, while they're not the same thing, they are linked. Um, and it's super important that we are addressing and understanding the background of our children, the cultures that they bring, um, in order to help them access the content, which is where the equity piece comes in. So we, uh, we address that through curriculum instruction in a variety of ways. One, we are beholden to state laws and state adopted curriculum, which um, state laws have built in a lot more <clears throat> equitable practices and requirements. Um, for example, in our in the new history framework, um, social studies um, history framework that was passed in 2011, um, which we implemented in 2016, the FAIR Act, which stands for um, Fair, Accurate, Inclusive, and Respectful SB 48. Um, that framework um, and, and the curriculum 
says by law we have to include um, underrepresented cultures um, from history in the teaching of history. So for example, um, you will see in our history books across the grade levels, um, specifically in American history, where American history is, is emphasized, um, stories about women, stories about Asians, stories about indigenous people, and stories about LGBTQ and their contributions to society. Um, their stories, they, they talk about how they've influenced history. It's not about who they are in terms of sexual identity or anything like that, but to say this woman was a lesbian, but she contributed this and she contributed that. Um, there are stories such as that in, in the history books um, to say these are, these are all people that make contributions to, to history and made us who we are as an American people. So that's just one example of how it's, it's incorporated. Um, but by law, all of, our, all of our curriculum is state adopted and approved um, and follows the California state standards. So. I saw on Twitter a teacher had posted, and I really, really liked it. It was, teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. <laughs> um, so teach, teach everything. So if you're going to talk about Western expansion and how great it was to have these people move out into the West, you also have to talk about the displaced people that were already there um, who weren't so thrilled about Western expansion. And, and just having those multiple perspectives of these guys thought this was wonderful. These people over here were slaughtered and killed. and uh, <laughs> They didn't think it was so great. Um, and to teach all of that at one time, to not say one was better than the other, but people had multiple perspectives based on history, based on uh, the time that they were living, you know, just different ways that people thought and to present all of that to children, not to say one person was bad or good. It's just, this is the information. This is the truth of mm -hmm. what was out there. Mm -hmm. I just really like that when I saw that on Twitter. I'm like, ooh, mm -hmm. that gives me chills. We've offered training for teachers on culturally responsive teaching. Can you give me an overview of that program? So we've done, uh, there's been some periodic um, isolated incidents of teaching culturally responsive um, teaching. So what is that? What does that mean? And how do you incorporate that into your classroom? But really what we're trying to do and the goal is um, culturally responsive teaching should not be taught or learned in isolation. It's not another thing. It should be embedded into everything that we do, the strategies um, with how we plan our lessons, how we deliver instruction, how students learn. So it should be about um, when we deliver professional development, we try to embed strategies that address culturally responsive teaching into each of our professional developments. So for example, we talked about barriers earlier. Um, Universal Design for Learning, or UDL, is, is a a huge framework that we reference a lot in terms of how to design instruction that's effective for students. It nails the equity piece 100% um, and the cultural responsive piece um, because it identifies the barriers um, that kids could bring into the classroom at the academic level or the behavioral level um, and helps to plan for those ahead of time so that you can address those through instruction and, and management techniques and routines and procedures um, to make the actual um, learning a little bit more accessible for the kids. Yeah, I have to say, Krista's um, spot on, um, but I, I do want to first define culturally responsive teaching, and um, this comes directly from Zaretta Hanman, and she wrote a book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. I recommend that you read, and if you ever find a PD that is surrounded um, off of, um, that has the foundations of her book, I would recommend that um, we attend that PD. 
So um, culturally responsive teaching is an educator's ability to recognize students' cultural displays of learning and meaning making and respond positively and constructively with teaching moves that use cultural knowledge as a scaffold to connect what the student knows to new concepts and content in order to promote effective information processing. All the while, the educator understands the importance of being in a relationship and having a social emotional connection to the student in order to create a safe space for learning. And so with culturally responsive teaching, we're, look, we're really focusing on that mindset, that mindset that, um, that is a shift in um, just looking at our own perspective and the way that we do things to really embracing the different cultures of our students. And by cultures, I don't just mean race, but we're looking at um, the whole, what makes up the whole student, the whole human being. And so um, as you're looking at culture, it could be, um, you know, we're looking at, it could be generational. So what generation they come from can um, also define um, how they act and move and learn right now. Um, also, like, you know, their household. So some people come from a one-parent household, some come from um, a two-parent household, some are military families, and so that is all a part of their culture. And so that's what um, culturally responsive teaching embraces and, and that mindset, that mindset shift, as well as different strategies that would be more culturally respectful than others for them. Um, but there are two different trainings that I do want to um, talk about that are um, intentional in looking at culturally responsive teaching. One is the Milo Method Equity and Impact course. So we've had um, two cohorts last year, and then this year we had Paiute that offered it to their whole staff. Um, we did open it up to um, other staff that we did one in September. We do have two that are coming up. One starts on November 29th and the other one starts on February 7th. And so a part of this um, training, and most of it is asynchronous, but it's a six week course, um, there's an, an intentional focus on culturally responsive teaching and on ways that we engage our students, we build trusting relationships and um, how we can really show our students that we care and wrap around them as we are trying to um, increase academic growth, we're also at the same time focusing on their social emotional learning and their um, behavior in order to in increase that and make it positive for them. The other one I want to, um, I want to give a, a shout out to Monica and Nakisha who are going to be doing our culturally responsive education PD. And so this one is a five week course and they have different topics such as defining culturally responsive education, the achievement gap in discipline, understanding and handling microaggressions, why we should be anti-racist instead of non-racist, and then a culturally responsive classroom. So I really appreciate these ladies taking on this in order to, um, straight from people from our district at looking at how to um, empower themselves and also, or not uh, Nikisha and Monica, but for the teachers to empower themselves and their students in the classroom. So could you give me an example of maybe a cultural um, misinterpretation that, that might happen in a classroom where a teacher might think that the kid's being disrespectful and the kid isn't being disrespectful, but how that might look in a classroom? So um, 
one one issue is can be language um and it can also be so the way that um they're speaking um might be deemed as a little bit more aggressive um and the words that they're using could be seen as um disrespectful so that is that is one um another might be the way you know well of course we've we've had um you know dress code issues as far as you know beanies hats wraps um things like that that's a that's another um thing if they didn't get a haircut and they don't want to take their hat off and they're supposed to take their hat off um just not that awareness of how haircuts can really <laughs> impact how hairdos how you know if I only have half my hair braided up and the rest is not, and I have something over how that can really impact a student. Mm -hmm. um, and they're sometimes more um, concerned about that than they are about, you know, what's going on in the classroom and what they have to learn for that day. So that can be deemed as one. And, and even the um, responses, like some students give um, how they respond to the adult in charge. Mm -hmm. um, there are, there are issues with that too that can be misinterpreted from the adult standpoint. Um, and instead of um, kind of coaching and teaching our students, um, we can sometimes be too quick to just punish and give a consequence. Right, I was thinking of um, like eye contact with a, a kid where you know, you're mm -hmm. talking to the child and you want them in my culture to look me in the eye and pay attention, you know, and a child from another culture may have been taught that it's disrespectful to look mm -hmm. somebody in the eye and would look down. Um, and that could be a misinterpretation of the teacher thinking that they're being disrespectful and they're not being, they're mm -hmm. actually being respectful to you. You just didn't understand their culture. So yeah. I think the more education we do with, with teachers and administrators, just to have them understand, just connect with the child, mm -hmm. connect with the family, let them know that we want them part of the education, we want you here, um, and that you're valued. And if we mm -hmm. do that, instead of being, you're being disrespectful to me, mm -hmm. uh, we're gonna get a lot farther with yes. our kids. Yes, and if you lead with that first, because there are so many different cultural cues mm -hmm. that, you know, way too much for a person to remember them all, but if you lead with that, what you're saying is, is really valuing that student and listening to that student and, and having that care, and um, connectedness with that student, um, you can get a long way. I mean, even if it takes a little bit of time, you still can get a long way with the student because the whole point is to have the student at school, in the classroom as much as possible, learning. And, and you cannot learn every cultural cue that's mm -hmm. ever out there. Just There's just no way. So just being kind and respectful to everybody you meet, that's that's mm -hmm. the way to handle yeah. it. Yeah, and as generations go, there are different cultural cues. <laughs> right. So it's like, never know. We were just talking about that because, you know, we had that um, Veterans Day and then Friday. Mm -hmm. And there were so many people that took that extra day off. And um, I was thinking from my generational standpoint, because I'm a baby boomer, I'm the very end of the baby boomers, um, that when it's a work day, it's a work day. You come to work, you just work every day. <laughs> and we were just talking about the millennial and that Gen Xers like, let me take a four-day weekend instead and it's not bad or good mm -hmm. it's just different ways to look at work and when you don't understand that people come from it from a different perspectives you're like these people are just awful they're not coming to work and it's not that it's yeah. just a different value yeah. instead of looking at it that oh they're they want to spend quality family time exactly mm -hmm. exactly um but you know if we ever have a day like that we need to take a cue from the high school district and have a professional and development day. Yes, that, but you know, that's like 
five years from now, I was looking at the calendar, and somebody's going to have to keep that institutional knowledge <laughs> because I am not going to be here in five years. <laughs> um, so when we talk about culturally responsive teaching, you said that it's ingrained in the classroom. So we're not doing those things anymore like um, uh, Women's Month, and we just celebrate and talk about women's achievement in that month only. Um, we're not doing those kind of things anymore. I mean, we, we celebrate Women's Month, but it's not just that's the only month we can talk about women's achievement, right? Yeah, it should have never been yeah. that way. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> FYI, it should have never been that way. But, um, but yeah, it's just, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month should be, you know, maybe a little heightened during that month, but it should be something that's integrated throughout the whole and entire school year. And that's why the FAIR Act, especially with our history program, but included in all of our textbooks that address narratives of any kind, really tries to say you need to focus on the stories of people throughout the year and their contributions rather than, you know, women's history or black history or, you know, mm -hmm. that they've contributed throughout history and all the time from all walks of life. Right, so, not just a month, you mm -hmm, know, a couple of mm -hmm. weeks, a, a year, and then that's yes, it. So. Yeah, but, you know, taking a month to celebrate, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that either. Yes, you know, yes. celebration. How is this applied in the classroom to support our students? Okay, so, um, one of the things is building trusting relationships and um, providing safe spaces for our students. And so, um, we have Capturing Kids Hearts, we have... Um, five schools that are national showcase mm -hmm. schools and we have other schools that um, are close to that but even without that you know status of being declared that they are really um, taking on the strategies and processes of um, capturing kids hearts and so um, with culturally responsive teaching we know that we need to provide safe spaces for our students so that they feel valued. And the way that we can do that is by building those trusting relationships and um, building a sense of community within our classrooms. So that's one way of, um, you know, some of our teachers are excellent at being warm demanders, having that care plus that push. Um, so holding still those high expectations for the students, even though still empathizing with, with some of their their needs, especially trauma. And that's the trick, is that warm, but still demanding, mm -hmm. still having those high standards. Um, I have a brand new teacher in the family, and so we were having that conversation. It's not about just being kind, but it's also about, you gotta teach every day. Yes. You gotta make sure that these kids are learning. And so, not to let them just kinda do what they want, because that's not being kind. Being kind to somebody is teaching them every day. Mm -hmm. It is making sure that they get a good education. So, mm -hmm. just, Learning that balance, yes. you know? Yeah, and even for administrators, because, you know, um, being a warm demander for our teachers, you know, that impacts our students, we, we need to make sure that we're doing that. We, we are, we're caring for them, we're um, empathizing, we're there for them, but we also still need to have those high expectations, especially if we're going to um, see growth within our mm -hmm. teachers, but then also growth within our students. So, yeah, um, another way, and I took this straight from the Zaretta Hammond book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain, because I felt that it applied to us, is that culturally responsive teachers learn to expand their interpretations of student behavior to include different cultural displays of learning and social interaction. And so I know with our, um, our PSA department, with, um, with the PBIS, the um, second step instruction, um, the community circles, which is um, a precursor to restorative practices, that they are really supporting our sites 
in, in being able to do this and looking at um, student behavior in a, in, a, in a different way so that we're not just jumping to consequence, but we're, we're actually looking at how can we help change behavior. Um, and then also the balance of rigor and expectation with support. And so um, I'm going to say our CIA department is doing an excellent job with the UDL training um, and with all of their academic training that they have that shows how this applies at different student learning levels. Um, and then also being very receptive to um, the teachers and their different levels of support that is needed um, and their different levels of understanding of how to integrate this. Um, actionable corrective feedback. Um, I know that in PLCs, we really look at the four questions and then um, hopefully all have started adding the, five, the fifth question, which takes a look at the barriers that might prevent students from um, really understanding and accessing the content that they're giving. Um, and then the last one is our, um, well, not the last one, there's multiple, <laughs> but another example is um, just our investment in culturally relevant books. And so um, Dr. Bowers was gracious enough to let us invest already in some culturally relevant books. Um, we're doing more investment with our um, librarians who, who choose to participate in NPD that really look at um, culturally affirming spaces. And so, um, yeah, this is a, another way that we see it, but I would have to say that this is an excellent question for sites to ask themselves. So administrators um, asking how is culturally responsive teaching um, being done at their site? Um, how are they being um, culturally affirming? How are they being, you know, is that cultural respect um, happening at their site? And then the teachers asking it for themselves is, you know, how do I know that this student, or how, sorry, how do I know that this classroom is um, culturally responsive and um, really meeting the needs of all of my students? Have we didn't done some specific training for our um, instructional coaches on this, um, in these methods? As a matter of fact, um, there is a, a National Equity Institute holds a lot of coaching uh, PDs and trainings and seminars, um, and we've had a good slew of our coaches who've attended the equity training for coaching to learn how to be an equitable coach and coaching practices and whatnot. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they're getting, a, they're getting a taste of that. And of course, that always envelops and includes the, the culturally responsive um, elements as well. And we've had um, quite a few coaches gone through the Milo method, mm -hmm. um, and they're able to, if they weren't able to um, sign up in September, they're able to sign up in either the November or the February cohort. And then I do have to say that, um, um, well, she was, she's a former instructional coach, but we have um, Anna and Rebecca who just recently wrapped up um, focal student and equity approach training. Mm -hmm. um, and this was directly from the coaching for equity that we did with the National, um, National Equity Project. That's great, because sometimes that first person that a teacher will go to, because mm -hmm. you know sometimes the administration is a little bit scary, is that coach. And if they've got that training and they can kind of help guide somebody, that really makes a difference in making sure that we're, we're making the steps towards the right, right direction. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I know that our, our principals did a lot of work on root cause. And what was the reason that maybe attendance wasn't going well at their school? Or what was the reason that they had a lot of suspensions? Do teachers do any root cause when they're looking at behaviors of a child like, you know, this child's just ah, screaming and yelling, but what's causing that behavior and how can we, we help that child learn better? 
Do we do any of that kind of work with teachers? You know, that is a good question. And honestly, I do not know. I do know that through PBIS, um, through the PSA department, I do know that they um, have someone who's in charge of pulling the data. And I know that their PBIS team is charged with looking at um, their PBIS data and then taking it to their staff. But as far as focusing on like a student with high, um, high office discipline referrals, ODRs, and then looking at the root cause of it, I'm not sure if that is, is always done. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would assume that as they are looking at this student has X amount of ODRs, um, let's take a look at what is his motivation for um, having these types of behavior, whether they are the same type of behavior over and over again, or um, they might not see seem connected, but let's find the connection with them. But that, that is an, an excellent question, and that is definitely something that should be done because that could very well um, alleviate a lot of the ongoing issues that we have. It takes a lot of work, but there's always a reason for behavior. There's always a reason for it. And mm -hmm. um, when you're looking at a child that's you know yelling to get attention or whatever it is, the behavior, even if they're being disrespectful and saying mean words back to you, mm -hmm. there's a reason for that behavior. You've got to figure out what the kid needs or wants um, from you because most children, most children want to please you and want to do well in, in school. They do. Um, but when you've got one that's kind of going the other way, you've got to figure out how to get that kid back on track and what that kid needs. So um, just kind of thinking about equitable practices yes. in our classroom. Yes, definitely. Because even though it might be a lot of work on the front end, um, it'll save a whole lot of time on the back end, not just for the teacher, but for the student themselves, because they'll be in class more than, than, than out of class. I'll jump in on this if, if it's yeah. okay. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I think first of all, we need to tap into some of our experts in the district because our special education department have got this one on lock. Um, when you talk about functions of behavior, why students behave the way they behave, it's, it's inherent in the special education department. Um, well, I think one of the things that I'd like to see us focus on a little bit more in the district, and this includes me and my department, is once you identify a function of behavior, what do you do about it? Mm -hmm. Yes. It, that's the key, yes. is how do you address that in the moment? Um, how do you address that uh, preventatively um, and responsibly both? So, um, and that's a struggle a lot of times when you're dealing with 35 kids mm -hmm. um, at the same time who are all struggling right now. Yes. <laughs> so I'd like to see us get, kind of get, um, get some more focus on, on how to help teachers with that piece. Yes. And, and it's hard because you do have 30 kids in your classroom mm -hmm. and you're tr still trying to teach and you're still mm -hmm. trying to do everything mm -hmm. you need to do. I was thinking about, uh, there's a little one in my daughter's class who was acting up and then went out for a while and then came back and wanted to hold her hand. They said, he's trying to make up with you. He's trying to get your approval and your love again. So maybe give him a hug before school starts mm -hmm. instead of him trying to act out and then and then get approval again. So yes, you know, yeah. think about it before it happens. Mm -hmm. What can you do to help that kid? Yes, but you bring up another good point about, um, about them returning. So making sure that there's a safe space to where they can return with grace and so we're not going to continue to harp on the yes. previous behavior <laughs> yeah you know how we sometimes say you know each day is a new day mm -hmm. but there is still some residual effects of what happened before um, but really truly giving um, grace to that student so that they can return back into their classroom successfully and I think that's true of every human being 
give people grace, mm -hmm. let them come back with respect and dignity, and usually that solves the problem mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're dealing with people because so you, you don't know what people are dealing with sometimes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we just give them a little bit of, it's okay, let's start again. Let's do that. And of course we should do that for a seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah, that's that. When you hold grudges against yes. little children, oh, I just don't understand that. Yes. Um, but same thing with adults. You know, we're all learning and we're all mm -hmm. trying to do our best. And uh, we've got to give each other grace, especially this year, because it's been a tough mm -hmm. year. So my, our next topic is going to be, what's it like to be a school board member? You know, there's a lot of people getting like death threats and crazy stuff mm -hmm. out there. So I'm going to talk to one of our board members and see how they feel about being a board member and what exactly they do because it's kind of a hidden world for most of us. Mm -hmm. um, but thank you ladies for coming on today. I really appreciate your insight and uh, your expertise on this matter. All right. thank, thank you. you.